0: We often picture vast megacities in the future and wonder if they'll be utopian gardenscape arcologies, or horrid hives of filth populated by gangs of mutants and cannibals. Personally, I don't see why you'd have to pick either or. So, today we'll be looking at the concept of mega cities, both from the science fiction perspective, which is often dystopian hives of crime and despair, and the potential future of giant cities and how they might be anything but such dystopias and how they might do that. In truth, we rarely see large cities as very nice places in science fiction. Negative examples like Mega City 1 from the Judge Dredd comic book series, or the various hive cities like Necromunda from Warhammer 40,000, show extreme examples of crime and decay and the entire cyberpunk genre is basically built on crowded dark metropolises, but even the more positive examples are fairly dark. This may not be surprising, a lot of the cyberpunk genre for instance is strongly influenced by mid-20th century film noir, literally black film or dark film, frequently featuring hard-boiled detectives investigating crimes in dark and crime-ridden cities. Those works tend to be heavy on pessimism and fatalism. Indeed, maybe the nicest example I know of is Isaac Asimov's classic novel The Caves of Steel, set in a future New York City that has sprawled out over much of New Jersey and is under a steel dome. In that novel, Earth is horribly overpopulated with eight billion people, and everyone lives inside a relative handful of giant megacities under such domes and suffers from agoraphobia, a fear of open places. Incidentally, the current population of Earth is 7.8 billion and we expect to hit 8 billion by 2023, and Asmo's other classic super-urbanized area, the Galactic Capital Planet City, or Accommonopolis of Trantor, was said to be super-crowded with 40 billion people. There is a long history of authors seriously messing up scale where population and urbanization is concerned, and I'm not picking on my namesake. The Grand Master of Science Fiction generally wrote very accurate sci-fi compared to almost everyone else, he just has the best known examples. He also wrote them way back in the middle of the 20th century, the same time film law was in its peak, and I suspect this notion of crowded, dark, filthy, crime-ridden giant cities dates from then as all around the world we were seeing a big rise in urbanization twinned with industrialization. Just for a little context, most of our biggest metropolises these days have somewhere around 10,000 people per square kilometer. So if you're maintaining that density over something the size of a state or medium-sized nation, which are generally on an order of 100,000 square kilometers, you'd have a population of around a billion in one, and as Earth has about 500 million square kilometers of land and sea, that density would equate to a population of 5 trillion people, not 40 billion. Problem is that even that huge number is misleading because cities are more than their dense downtown regions. New York City has more skyscrapers than most cities per citizen, but it's only about 300 skyscrapers, and also only about 6,000 high-rise buildings. The world's tallest residential buildings currently are north of 400 meters tall, and have a density of a bit over one person per square meter, since they have around 100 floors. A hypothetical megacity where most folks live in very cramped apartments inside skyscrapers that tall, or taller, a kilometer or more, ought to be around 100 times denser than your typical metropolis with around a million people per square kilometer, meaning some megacity built all like that and state-sized ought to be hosting 100 billion people all on its own, and if the whole planet was like that we'd be talking about a population of around a quadrillion, not a trillion let alone 40 billion. Even if it were mostly just high-rises, we'd still be talking megacities of billions, not tens of millions, and most folks living in modern New York City don't live in a skyscraper or a high-rise. There are more than a million buildings in NYC for its 8 million folks living inside city limits. In the metropolitan region, which is home to around half again as many folks, things are even less dense. Interestingly, while the definition of a high-rise building varies, in the US a mid-rise building is one as tall as the street is wide, allowing 5 hours of sunlight on the street, and high-rises are taller allowing less sunlight and making streetlight or reflective glass buildings a lot more necessary to keep those streets lit even before nightfall. This probably helps feed into the science fiction trope of megacities as being rather dark and one I always note when in downtown areas. Fictional megacities often have domes or air pollution adding to the darkness but the sheer height of the buildings alone can have that effect, so large dense ones will need supplemental lighting on the lower levels, even ignoring that much of the city might be actually underground. Data also supports that cities have higher crime rates per capita than rural areas and while the reasons for this are hotly debated and probably myriad, this appears to be genuinely the case and also is a global phenomena, true of cities worldwide in general, and regardless of its truth it is the general perception so shows up in fiction. So even ignoring all the infamous gangs and mobsters of the film noir era, it's not surprising that fictional megacities get seen as full of criminals. Needless to say it's pretty hard to keep cities clean, though we do it way better than the mid-20th century, let alone pre-modern times where your garbage pickup and plumbing were not in play. So I thought today we'd examine both those fictional dystopian megacities and apply some science and realism to them to see how they might be, and how our own future megacities might be. Assuming we have them. Ultimately the drive to cities had to do with jobs and services being more readily available there while at the same time we were no longer subsistence farmers, folks who grow their own food and a little bit more for trade. As opposed to now where a single farm that's full time is typically cranking out more like a hundred times what its employees personally eat. Indeed that could shift to cities too, as we might adopt more vertical farming or greenhouses and hydroponics, and that might end up being done inside cities. See the Arcologies episode for more discussion of self-sufficient architecture and growing food inside super-tall buildings. Anyway, the cities grew and sometimes overlapped and merged, or absorbed their nominal suburbs, and folks tended to assume this was an eternal thing that would only stop when we ran out of growing space. Though as Asimov noted in his novel Caves of Steel, that wasn't an unbeatable hurdle, as they could grow algae and similar in artificially lit tanks stacked on top of each other if they had a power supply. We had a huge boom in open air farming productivity so can move that maximum figure up from his suggested 8 billion and could easily crank it up even more with various approaches like greenhouses instead of open air farming, vertical farming and hydroponics not to mention space farms, so there really isn't an upper limit to people on the supply side. However, we do have limits based on getting rid of heat and also the sheer issues with transport in and out of supplies and people. Air quality inside a city is always a worry, even leaving out examples like the Great Smog of London, but doming one over to help with this is rather dubious since the city itself is a far bigger and denser producer of pollutants than things outside in general. So you generally would not be doming a place over with only a few exceptions, like if you are on an airless world like Mars or the Moon and began out of domes and just expanded. You still have to supply and clean that air though. As an example, if we made a big hemispherical dome over a megacity with a population of a billion people, then they need to be getting rid of and bringing in about a billion pounds of carbon dioxide and oxygen a day just for people's breathing and not including any other life forms or machinery, or around half a cubic meter each. That is about half a billion cubic meters coming in and about the same going out daily. For scale, while you'd probably pipe it in, or if freighting in did so with a gas under compression, but the typical railroad car has around 100 meters of volume so a billion people would need a train 5 million cars long coming in each day, and presumably going out too as you need to purge that air. Even ignoring the whole greenhouse gas and heat islands issue, concentrations of carbon dioxide can be lethal if high enough and can cause lethargy and mental issues even as low as thrice the atmospheric normal concentration. This is already a major problem in the venting of modern buildings which tend to have higher concentrations of carbon dioxide, especially in the winter. CO2 is also heavier than normal air so you can't rely on it just going away on its own. Indeed, we have some mountain lakes that were deep enough to have pressures where carbon dioxide in them could liquefy and store in large amounts and ended up outgassing and killing people. You could have similar things happen in giant megacities and hives, where you'd potentially have high-pressure locations where the carbon dioxide accumulated, especially without proper venting. New York City uses a billion gallons or a few billion liters of water a day, some megacity of a billion needs a hundred times that, and presumably needs to have reservoirs, cisterns, and septic tanks able to hoard many days worth of water and waste. If you got some super water tower or septic tank a kilometer tall or deep, that thing has 100 atmospheres of pressure at its bottom more than enough to liquefy carbon dioxide at room temperature if CO2 is getting in those tanks. Air is light compared to food and water though, and in terms of volume we use about the same amount of water per day, at between a quarter to half a cubic meter. We excrete similar. Even ignoring the pressure issues of pumping fluids, water, or air up into kilometer-tall buildings or kilometer-deep subterranean regions, modern New York City has over 10,000 kilometers of water mains, and you need more than proportionally as the city grew. Ditto sewer pipes, all those and their storage and recycling tanks are going to need to be somewhere, and while many likely would be subterranean and create quite the impressive undercity, much will probably need to be higher up in the air with the residential buildings. Moving stuff in dense places is tricky, as best discussed with the elevator conundrum. Elevators permit tall buildings but paradoxically also limit their height, because the more people and floors inside one the more elevators you need and each shaft has to pass through every floor and you need more than double if you double the height, because the average ride time in an elevator is longer if you are taller. In a simple approximation, if I double a building's height, I've doubled how many people need to use elevators, but also double the average time each elevator needs to service a person, quadrupling it, and thus quadrupling the number of shafts, but each one still takes up the same space per floor. Eventually you reach a point where half your floor space is elevator shafts and if you are building taller you can't get any more people inside. Similar problems occur for transporting other things, be it roads or water, and you mostly get around it by smart traffic control and higher speeds. We normally pump water through pipes at about a meter per second. We can move it faster, especially in wider pipes, which not only have a higher flow from their wider cross-section but allow a faster speed of water. You also don't necessarily have as much demand in the tallest buildings as they might be fairly self-contained with shops and jobs in them, and crosswalks to neighboring buildings out at higher floors, rather than everyone going to their apartment and the ground floor and just that. This could result in stratification all by itself, as while we have neighborhoods and cities now, those exist two-dimensionally. If the buildings are tall enough and linked together at higher floors, you'd start seeing neighborhoods occupy certain altitudes, not just north, east, south, and west uptown and downtown take on very different meanings. Don't assume transit up and down is all elevators either, it is not that hard to make vehicles and roads that can run vertically even ignoring options like air travel. When you start making buildings kilometers tall even freight elevators aren't really ideal anymore and you might be considering vertical passenger and freight vehicles and the roads or rails for them. One key concept here, you have a lot of wide veins and arteries in such a city and they take up a lot of space probably far more than the actual living quarters. But let's contemplate scale for the moment and we'll make up a hypothetical example for that. We'll call it Megacity 42 or MC42, because 42 is the channel's lucky number, and say it is a big giant square brick built of super-strong materials 50 kilometers aside, rising 4 kilometers up and 2 down, nearly half buried, and with a population of a person per square meter or a million per square kilometer. So there's 2.5 billion people in there, nearly a third of our current planetary population, and equal to what it was when Asma wrote Caves of Steel in 1954. That sounds very crowded. If you had everyone on the same floor they would literally be packed shorter to shorter. We will assume essentially modern biology in terms of needs, consumption, lifespan, etc. Now on one floor they'd be shorter to shorter, but the thing is 6 kilometers in total height. And if we assume 3 meters or 10 feet per story that means it's got 2,000 levels, which means each level has 2.5 billion square meters to it, but the whole thing has 5 trillion, or 5 million square kilometers, the equivalent of 1% of Earth's surface area or bigger than all but the top 5 or 6 largest modern nations. Suddenly it's a lot more roomy. We shouldn't assume those 2,000 floors were everywhere as you'd presumably have a lot of places with much higher ceilings or none but if you did there would be 2,000 square meters per person, 21,500 square feet or half an acre, which would be palatial if we're talking apartments, but we can probably throw around 90% of that area to all the stores, factories, roads, elevators, pipes, storage facilities, hydroponics, and places that just aren't one normal floor high. Which would still be roomy, at about 2,000 square meters per person versus the modern norm of more like a tenth of that, per resident, and even fairly roomy houses rarely more than Given that folks tend to concentrate till they're comfortable and that most of the space isn't residential, you are likely have vast areas that are pretty sparse in people there, even assuming you don't have abandoned areas. Some hydroponics facility feeding the population is probably mostly automated and regardless would have huge chunks empty of people for long stretches, or even just shut down while awaiting use for some other crop or a change in demand. And it would be big, hydroponics can be very dense and multi-leveled, But we would still be talking tens of square meters per person, so we're talking hundreds of giant skyscrapers or subterranean caverns devoted just to individual crops, mostly empty of people most of the time. Let's talk numbers. With 2.5 trillion people, one person is born and one person dies every single second. If we assume they stored folks in crypts of a few cubic meters per person, that's 100 million cubic meters of tombs every year, probably mostly abandoned fully a cubic kilometer of new tombs every decade. There are 160,000 funeral homes servicing the city and filling that necropolis, and a quarter of a million obstetricians delivering the replacement population. Alternatively, if the place is dystopian and the final resting place of most folks is down the sewer or garbage shafts, with the average human body containing about 125,000 calories, there are 5 million mutant cannibals living in the underhive on a diet of humans. I'm not sure if it's more disturbing that someone carefully calculated that out or that I googled it and calculated how many folks could live on it, but either way, welcome to SFIA, where we contemplate how plausible a cannibal subcivilization might be, and for show regulars, note that I did not suggest a drink and a snack at the start of the episode. Dystopian sci-fi loves to imply cannibalism as a civilization-wide thing, like with Soylent Green. But you cannot do that. There's only a couple months of food for one person in a person, and it takes a lot more than a couple months to grow one. Still, you can have a very large niche for detritivores simply from the sheer hugeness of the overall population. Again, in this case, five million. That's a lot of folks who could survive on a diet of human alone, and they could probably supplement that heavily with mushrooms grown from all the human waste flushed down the tubes too, over a billion kilograms of solid waste and about thrice that of liquid waste per day, and an order of magnitude more of that in the water carrying it away. It reminds me a bit of the concept of marine snow, detritus falling from higher levels of the ocean to feed the lower levels where there is no light. Key notion in that grim little aside, unless you're taking active steps to prevent a place being dystopian, with sufficient time and size you're creating ecological niches and rather big ones. MC42 is supporting a mutant cannibal population in its bowels, quite capable of filling out a modest-sized modern nation or one of our largest metropolises all on its own. And again, if they're raiding the mushroom farms near the waste dumps they can do way better, you can grow an awful lot of mushrooms out of a million tons of crap, not to mention all the wasted food. We estimate about 30-40% of food in the modern US is wasted, and even if we assume they do way better, only tossing 1% of their food not 40%, MC42 could support 25 million people on that alone, and fully a billion if it was 40% wasted or tossed out. Scale is always so important for future concepts because it's where you notice that 2.5 billion people, each throwing out a crust of bread a day, are throwing out a combined several billion loaves a year. It's where you note that MC-42 either has a million garbage collectors on the payroll, at modern levels, or it's equivalent in robot manpower. Is where you note that if you've got a few million giant factories and warehouses, and each one is only shut down and abandoned for one year once a century for sale, renovation, or abandonment, that means you've got tens of thousands of them abandoned at any one time, where squatters or gangs of mutant cannibals can dwell. It produces a couple billion tons of trash a year, and millions are employed either disposing and recycling it or scavenging from it. And if you are using super strong materials, keeping in mind that even a thick steel girder might need centuries to rust down, you could easily get a city built on a city, of layer after layer of things built on top of the ruins of those deemed too much of a hassle to repair, or no longer in an area with enough traffic to make it worth using. In all likelihood you don't even get civilizations in cities like this emerging unless they're big on long-term building, sustainability, and efficiency, but you only need that to be true during its initial building and growth phase. If the city starts dwindling in population for some reason, that often gets into a feedback loop with bad management, strained resources, higher crime and corruption, and a general pessimism about the civilization, so it could turn into a ramshackle half-abandoned megacity in a few generations. Indeed left to itself, those buildings meant to house a billion in comfort and luxury might be home to scattered tribes of mere millions a few centuries later, just because the effort to repair it is considered more than building a new one elsewhere is. I also keep mentioning mutants, as they're popular in sci-fi dystopias, but keeping in mind that cybernetic and genetic tinkering is likely to be common in our future, that might be real enough, especially with animals. As we looked at in our Environments of Space Habitats episode, those being closed in artificial ecosystems, you might tend to modify a lot of critters to fit that ecosystem, like tinkering with your squirrels or birds, to pick up litter and turn it in at waste collection points for food. A megacity is arguably little different than a space habitat. Especially if you're aiming for the arcology approach of self contained and self sufficient production of everything, including food. You might have some very weird critters wandering around such a place if they went feral from neglect or simply being rendered redundant or out of fashion. Someone designs a mechanical board and produces a few thousand as some neat new fad in urban cleanup, and a century later they've been replaced but most are still in service and wandering around, having adapted to raiding scrap heaps for replacement parts. Someone genetically engineers alligators to swim around the sewers, clearing blockages and eating the beavers who keep damming up the pipes, and now the old yarn about alligators in the sewers becomes real and maybe even a tourist feature. Delve the depths of the Undercity and hunt the Cyborgators. One might worry about the whole thing collapsing literally, not just culturally, but keep in mind most older cities are already built on top of older layers of themselves. For that matter, while we're contemplating the lower levels of MC42 filling up with garbage and corpses, and being a literally crappy place to live, that is actually the planet we live on. When you walk out in a forest you are stepping on ground composed of fallen trees and decayed plants, animals, and their waste, many millions of years of it, and we don't hesitate to build on that either. Whereas some 20 meter thick tether of graphene or a shaft of ultra-strong unobtainium might be quite capable of sitting there for millennia, holding up everything above it even while entire wars were being fought in those lower levels, between various gangs and whatever passed for law enforcement. Upward mobility might be very literal in Omega City as it might just be easier to keep building upwards regardless of if lower levels were being left vacant or even collapsing occasionally. Also, keep in mind if you are preserving your dead in an Acropolis, the one for MC-42 was growing by a cubic kilometer a decade, a millennia later it is a literal mountain of corpses and probably very empty of the living, but if you got strong and durable materials such things might become routine. They'd also be a natural haven for criminals or undesired elements to hide or be banished to. This doesn't even necessarily imply the powers that be are particularly cruel or callous either, it's just a matter of scale. The Attorney General's Office estimates there are 20,000 gangs in the US with about a million total members, we'd expect MC42 with 8 times the population to at least match that proportionally with 160,000 gangs and 8 million members, the entire populace of modern New York City, and 6 times the number of people on active duty in the US military. Here would all be packed together though, and again that's assuming modern US averages. The cities with the highest murder rates in the world average between 50 to 130 murders per 100,000 people per year. So if MC-42 matched that, full-on dystopian, that would be as much as 3 million murders a year, or one about every 10 seconds, as the cause of death for 10% of the population. So MC-42 could be having regular battalion or regimental scale clashes between megagangs without being any more homicidal than some of our more dangerous cities on modern Earth, to combat that MC-42 probably has somewhere between 0.1% to 1% of its populace as law enforcement, or 2.5 to 25 million. Alright, that is dystopia and we are assuming it for a case where pessimism reigns and somewhat Darwinian natural order exists. Let's talk now about why that wouldn't be, probably, and how future megacities might actually look. A lot comes down to the character of the civilization and the competence and intent of those running the show, but much comes down to technology. If you've got a virtually unlimited power supply and super strong materials then your megacity is probably composed of mini giant towers that people live on the outer ring of with hydroponics and industry in the interior regions along with enclosed, lit, and manicured parks. You have no shortage of fresh water as you can easily pump your used water or salt water through filtration systems and also use it as a giant coolant and radiator to keep the city cool from all the heat people and their activities generate. You can recycle everything through sheer brute force application of energy if you need to, and because heat removal is your true bottleneck there is no space limitation, just limits on how much activity you can have and how much lighting you can have. Just the natural daylight hitting a given square meter of Earth during daytime is enough to comfortably light a thousand times as much area to what we think of as a slightly dim interior lighting. Your real control on space is the price of building it and maintaining it. And so for instance a megacity whose structures were built of self-repairing material is likely to be gigantic in terms of internal space, per person, because you can build cheap and do not need to maintain it beyond feeding some raw materials and energy to any given house. Organic buildings might have something akin to their own plumbing system as nutrients were sent through and waste removed. The same would tend to apply if you had something that was just very strong, cheap, and durable as your main building materials, much as steel and concrete altered our cities when they got cheap enough to build with. A lot can be done with traffic control too. I suspect it won't be more than another generation before traffic jams become oddities reported on the news as such rather than the typical traffic report for rush hour. If you use modern navigating software you're probably already used to seeing stretches of road on your map to an orange or red to indicate real-time slowdowns, and it would be very easy with enough computing and tracking for that to improve to the point that most traffic is being coordinated down to the moment to minimize everyone's delays. To add to that I suspect most vehicles will have an autopilot feature built in as a standard option within at most 20 years, so that would tend to help with city growth, where your car or robot taxi can just drop you off at your destination then go park and get summoned to arrive at a precise moment when you need to leave. Indeed I suspect we wouldn't see cities grow too much more without a lot of that sort of smart control as a regular complaint by those contemplating living there is always the traffic and parking issues. Little tiny changes like that can seriously impact growth too. As an example, if 10% of the population is contemplating moving into a city or leaving it, and for only 10% of those is traffic a big enough factor to push them one way or another, that's a 1% growth rate just from that one single thing. It would amplify too as there is so much lost time and money in traffic delays. Similarly I mentioned food waste is running between 30-40% and that is everything from the farm to your table and is ripe for improvement to prevent spoilage loss. Smarter farming, smarter harvesting and transport and distribution, and even smart apps that monitored as you cook, knew the typical appetites of yourself and who you cooked for, and could do on-the-fly recipe alterations to produce just the right amount, are probably not that far off. Warehouses, from an economic perspective, are fundamentally a bad thing, it's inventory sitting there burning money to maintain the place while the goods decay, and if you've really got your supply and demand calculations down, and also weather and season dependent on production of things like food, you can minimize warehouse costs. You could get reverse trends too, better automation means fewer folks working in large centralized factories and also would tend to come in a package with a lot more remote work letting you commute at light speed, and we might see cities begin to unpack as folks just opted to live wherever seen best with no consideration for its proximity to workplaces or supply points. These exact same technologies tend to help with issues of violent crime and property damage, intentional or accidental, as you can track and respond so much more accurately and quickly and possibly predictively, and we discussed some of that more in the episode New Technologies That Might Be In The Cards. So it is very speculative if the rise of cities will lead to the rise of megacities with one big caveat, as long as we can keep feeding people it seems like the population would keep growing and Earth is likely to always be seen as the most valuable real estate. As we've noted elsewhere, if your goal is to have nature preserves, you're probably better off building those in space habitats like an O'Neill Cylinder rather than trying to keep chunks of Earth preserved since it is so much easier to control things like invasive species or pollution or ecological shifts in a big closed cylinder floating in the vacuum. Cost is a big factor there though, when we're talking about building up, building giant structures kilometers high or deep with many levels or space habitats, i guess that your price point is going to be something like 10% of your civilization GDP for construction and maintenance of these sorts of megastructures, be they mega-scrapers or space habitats. It might be twice that or half that but I would tend to think we couldn't support much more than double that without folks feeling like they could do with less space, and at much less than half that they'd probably feel comfortable having more. So if you got robots who can spew out the equivalent of a square kilometer per person and maintain that on that budget, either from being good at maintenance or using ultra durable materials, then that's the kind of density people would have. But if it all has to be done by hand and 100 square meters per person was the price point, then crammed little apartments is what you get. Either way, though, if a place is attracted to live in in and of itself, folks will tend to pack in there. And it's not hard to imagine that in the more distant future, if our solar system became a Dyson swarm or the center of interstellar civilization, Earth might be so attractive as a destination that even a square meter of Antarctica might cost more than most people earned in a year, just because the whole planet had urbanized. As an example, if in a Dyson swarm or galactic empire of a 100 billion billion people, just one in a million people decide to visit Earth in a given year for just a few days each. That is a trillion tourists on world at any given time. Whether visiting megacities sprawling over every last inch of land and sea, or packed into apartments the size of closets, or Earth has become some hundred layered Matrioska ward, or a near pristine wilderness dotted with skinny, self contained, kilometers high arcology supertowers, it is hard to say without knowing not only the technology available, but its specific economics. Of course cities also tend to move with time, even ignoring population growth what was once a giant urbanized area can crawl over the map over centuries. A farm pasture of one century is now a thriving downtown region, and if your populace stops growing, even if just locally, be that a region of Earth or a region of the galaxy, then the population shifts could see areas abandoned or reduced to a fraction of their former number. If those places are built to last, you could get huge tracts of giant structures nearly abandoned for decades only to be revitalized decades or centuries later. As for the future of our own cities, I suspect they will tend to keep growing in population and shifting and merging, but also more so in size, as we can build bigger cheaper and more durably and overall standard of living rises. Fundamentally the science fiction trope of dark, violent, and decaying megacities is, as we know near the beginning, fueled by the inherent pessimism and fatalism we see in fiction, particularly the film noir inspired cyberpunk genre. It is a story very rooted in the darker parts of human nature. On this show we don't ignore that aspect of things, but tend to take the idea that the future is a far brighter and more optimistic place, and I suspect our cities will trend toward that. So probably no roving gangs of albino mutant cannibals living in the depths of the megacities in the future, or at least not very many of them. We were discussing the difficulty of moving things in and out of megacities today, and I thought we'd close with a bit of a brain teaser on city transport from our friends at Brilliant, though I've modified it a bit for a sci-fi theme. You have five megacities, Pascal, Cura, Rutherford, Sagan, and Tesla, and 4 available modes of transport, Airplane, Spaceship, Vacuum Train, and Wormhole Gateway. But most cities only have one or two of those options available to reach another. Pascal and Cora are connected by Spaceship and Vacuum Train, Sagan and Rutherford are connected by a Wormhole Gateway and a Spaceship, Cora and Tesla are connected by air travel only, Pascal and Rutherford are connected only by Spaceship and Tesla and Rutherford are connected by a vacuum train and a wormhole gateway. We have a traveler who starts in the megacity of Pascal, and wants to visit every place at least once before returning to Pascal, but he will have to visit one of the cities twice. Based on these modes of travel between the cities, which place must he visit twice? Cora, Rutherford, Sagan, or Tesla? Go ahead and put your answer and reasoning in the comments below. Brain teasers and problems are a great way to get the brain going, I try to do one with my morning coffee every day, but they're also a great way to have fun with the family too while getting some education in. My wife Sarah and I tend to do a logic problem, sudoku puzzle, or crossword most days, and it's a great way to learn and have fun. Having fun while you're doing it is the best way to learn, and something our friends over at Brilliant focus on. They have a huge collection of daily challenges and quizzes, including the one we just covered, as well as detailed explanations of how to solve them if you get stumped. If you are naturally curious, want to build your problem-solving skills, or need to develop confidence in your analytical abilities, then get Brilliant Premium to learn something new. Brilliant's thought-provoking math, science, and computer science content helps guide you to mastery by taking complex concepts and breaking them up into bite-sized, understandable chunks. You will start by having fun with our interactive explorations. Over time, you'll be amazed at what you can accomplish. If you'd like to learn more science, math, and computer science, and want to do it at your own pace and from the comfort of your own home, go to brilliantorg slash and try it out for free. Before we get to the upcoming schedule, I want to give a quick shout-out to the sci-fi film 2067 that came out last week. The studio sent me an advance copy a couple weeks back and it combines a mix of Blade Runner-esque dark future in a grim metropolis with time travel paradoxes. It's the first time travel film or show that surprised me with its resolution of the various predestination paradoxes in a long while, and combining it with sci-fi film noir cinematography makes a nice accompaniment to today's episode on Grim Future Megacities, and definitely worth a watch. So that will wrap us up for today, but we'll be back this weekend for a mid-month bonus episode, as we look at the recently released Navy UFO footage and try to see what mundane explanations might fit them, and if they aren't mundane, what they might be and what it might indicate about our potential alien visitors and their advanced technology. Then next Thursday we'll turn things around a bit and ask how low-tech a civilization can be and still travel through space to distant worlds. And in two weeks we'll return to our new series, Becoming an Interplanetary Species, to look at our first trip to a distant world as we look at our first base on Mars and how we go about getting there. If you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you'd like to help support future episodes you can donate to us on Patreon or our website, IsaacArthur.net which are linked in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week!